from Green Biz Group, welcome to Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Green Biz events. I'm Joel McCower. In order to understand and have that context of how infrastructure is dependent on each other, and, and frankly, the second, third, fourth node from, from maybe the obvious um, thing, we, we need to be sharing information. Christy Riccardi is the Region 9 Director of the Office of Infrastructure Protection at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. She talked with Ron Cox, Senior Vice President of Hawaiian Electric Company, Chris Floro, the Public Works Line Director for the Navy in the Pacific, and me about resilience in Hawaii at the Verge Hawaii Conference in 2018. We dove past the buzzwords to learn how to make communities resilient in energy, food supply, and more. Let's listen in. Let's start with, with you, Ron. First of all, what does Hawaii Electric, HECO, as some people know it, uh, what does it mean to have a resilient Hawaii? Well, we think of resilience uh, basically in terms of what our customers see, and that is you want to minimize, our goal is to minimize the amount of time that they are out when something bad happens. And bad happens could be as something as simple as their secondary service to their house going down or a, pole, a car hitting a, a pole and knocking it down, or it could be a storm. So one of the things that we do is uh, we invest in our grid to make sure that uh, it stays up to standards and make it more resilient. And as we see as weather patterns change, uh, we try and keep up with that change in the way that we manage the vegetation, how it grows around our lines to, to minimize the amount of interruptions customers see. So resilience really is about reducing the number of customers out and the duration that they're out. But how is that different from what you have probably been doing, or certainly your goals ever since you've been a utility? The goal hasn't changed, that, uh, but the technologies are changing. So recently the, the Public Utilities Commission approved our grid modernization strategy. So that creates a, a whole wealth of new opportunities uh, for implementation of modern technologies that uh, in, you know, more intelligently with uh, automated telemetered grid, uh, we can minimize, sectionalize uh, outages, reduce the number of customers out to just the, the more localized affected areas. And it also creates opportunities to make a more distributed grid. We have uh, 75, 80,000 individual generators out there on our grid today, all those rooftop systems. And as we modernize the grid, we find new ways to take advantage of that to, to help uh, create that resilience. So while the goals haven't changed, the, op the technologies and the strategies continue to evolve at a faster and faster pace. Jim Mulsey, former Secretary of the Navy and head of the CIA at one point, has this great line that I always love, which is that the electric grid was perfectly designed for just-in-time, but not so much for just-in-case. Yeah. How do you think you're doing? I think we're doing pretty well. You know, we uh, sometimes get, you know, with the recent uh, uh, kind of disaster in Puerto Rico, we often get looked at, uh, you know, with a, in a new light. You know, we are twice as far away from... Uh, the mainland as Puerto Rico. So when it comes to resilience, uh, we don't have the same uh, ability to ask for mutual aid and assistance as they do in Florida, where in a few hours you can have trucks and crews there. So we have to plan in a different way. But we are 
and have been investing in our grid. So we don't have folks who look at Puerto Rico, we don't have the same challenges that they have. We have a financially stable company who's been making investments at one and a half billion dollars over the last seven or eight years here on Oahu alone. And we also have well-trained employees who are certified in the Federal Incident Command Management System and know their roles and responsibilities. We train to that every year. Uh, and we practice with uh, our, our state, county, and federal partners here. So we have a, a pretty solid team. We're not, obviously, we're always trying to get better. Uh, that's, a, that's a goal, constantly improvement. But uh, we have focused on this, and as, as we watch the lessons coming out of Puerto Rico, we factor that into our planning. So, for example, microgrids. Uh, I'll take a recent example with Y Island and the lava. We had plans in place to establish a microgrid if those communities were cut off from our main service. And we haven't had to enact those because the entire community themselves, like Poiki and, and other areas have been cut off. But that's the way we plan in a, you know, a little different way than we have in the past and as a response to what we see and what we've learned from Puerto Rico. Yeah, how you get to Carnegie Hall, right? Practice, practice, practice. Christy, your role at DHS is around uh, integrating resilience into infrastructure, I, I think. And um, how, what, how do you see the role of technology in doing that and reaching that goal? No, great question. And I think we heard a little bit about this from Ron. I think technology has the opportunity to really advance us to a more resilient infrastructure, um, whether that's um, providing uh, smarter ways of looking at, at our infrastructure, making sure that we can, we can build it um, more secure, more stable. Um, I, think there's, I think there's an interesting conversation about technology. And I, look, I'm the first person to, um, my, my background in computer science, I love technology. And I think there's a, there's a huge place for it. I enjoyed the presentations this morning. But I think there's also a balance of being over-reliant on technology and making sure that as we introduce technology to making a more resilient uh, energy infrastructure or the, the other infrastructures that rely on energy infrastructure that we're also taking into account um, cybersecurity issues, um, backup, uh, backup systems, manual overrides, and those kind of things. So I think there is, there is a ton of opportunity, and I, I think especially when you're looking at technology that might solve one part of an energy problem, such as efficiency, which we're talking a lot about today, has the potential to get us further in a resilient sort of way too, to give us that data, to give us those controls. But I think we also have to, we have to find that balance on um, or we rely too much on technology, or maybe we get too excited about the technology and we forget um, that there's some other things we need to be keeping in mind. So what might be the downside of over-relying on technology um, from a resilience perspective? Potentially not, not having um, you know, backup, uh, uh, backup plans that we're used to using, for example. So if we've gone years and years um, of being relying on um, computer screens and switches and those kind of things, does our workforce um, know what to do when those computer screens go down? And they could be going down for a lot of different reasons. It could be because uh, there's, someone, there's someone up to no good. Um, it also could just be um, your run-of-the-mill. We've all gotten the blue screen of death. Your run-of-the-mill um, you know, technology glitches and making sure that we, um, we have those, um, those systems systems in place um, to be able to keep the energy flowing in the case of energy infrastructure. And then other infrastructures, what are they going to do when they're without 
the energy, um, whether it was from a technology disruption or otherwise. Um, how are they, what are their contingency plans? How are they going to be able to continue to operate their services? Or how are we going to be able to get them um, back online uh, to restore those services, um, potentially in the dark? Literally. Ron, Ron mentioned that, that obviously that Hawaii is much further from the mainland than, than Puerto Rico is. Um, does that cause any, any challenges there from your perspective? Do you see that uh, adding, compounding the, the challenge? Yeah, because I think you have um, a unique aspect with the supply chain here. Um, where there's uh, there's a just-in-time, in many cases, a just-in-time supply. Um, as Ron pointed out, quite a bit of distance um, to getting to getting supplies in mainland. So, so relying on uh, being able to put a bunch of poles on a ship, for example, um, you know, may not be a 96-hour solution. We're going to need to look at other things. I think the other thing about um, uh, the interdependencies on this island that are exasperated by being um, so far from the mainland is the, re the interdependencies among infrastructures that are going to need um, lifeline sectors, whether that's energy or water, um, to get them, them going again. And so you start to see a cascading impact. So if you have a disruption to the port, for example, is that going to impact um, how we're getting fuel in? And if so, um, is that going to impact how we're getting trucks to restoration sites? I think that all gets just a little bit more complicated um, when we can't put a bunch of things on a barge and get it here in, in, in a few hours like, uh, like they could in, in other island areas. Well, that's when we call in the Navy, so let's do that right now. Um, uh, Christopher, uh, first of all, how, I, I imagine that the Navy's definition of resilience may be somewhat different from Hawaii Electrics or, or, or lots of the others in the civilian side. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that the definition is different. But in terms of how we apply our efforts to achieve resiliency might be a little bit different. Um, last year, the Navy implemented what we call the energy security framework. And there are three pillars to the energy security framework. There's reliability, resiliency, and efficiency. And so in, in the context of planning for a resilient Hawaii, our ultimate targets or objectives may not necessarily be equivalent, but what we're doing synchronizes what, with what the state is doing with what our strategic partners, whether it be a Hawaiian Electric or Hawaii Gas, from a resilience perspective. So, you know, we're, we've been essentially tasked with doing what makes good business sense and making sure it supports the mission of the Navy. So whether it's an air station, whether it's submarine base or, or Navy base with waterfront shore power, reliability, resiliency, efficiency. I think, I, I think we're pretty much in, in, in sync with what the state is doing and what our partners are doing. One thing that's not exactly in sync, uh, we've had a lot of people from the Navy and from, from, the DO, from DOD broadly on stage at uh, Urge Hawaii events over the past three years. Um, and, 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 and I say that only by way of the fact that just extolling the amazing work that you do and the leadership you have on, on energy and, and, and flexibility, resilience, adaptability, and, and all of the things that you do to support the mission. Um, but your goals are, don't sync up quite with the Hawaii state's goals around renewables. And, and so again, that's correct, but maybe you know the 100% renewables or resiliency by 2045 doesn't line up with what the Navy is doing, but certainly we're doing everything we can to enable renewable generation. 
And when I mentioned the, the, the aspect of doing what makes good business sense, you know, whether it's partnering with strategic partners for third-party financing to enable additional renewable generation, you know, we're, we're getting to 50% by 2020 from a renewable perspective. I, I think the big difference is over the past four or five years, um, under former Secretary McGinn, there was a, a, a specific target of, okay, one gigawatt of renewable energy. And there was, there was so much focus on that target that, that sometimes there was a question of the, the actual economics to achieve that target. And so that's why from a Secretary Carter or Secretary Bayer perspective, we need to do what makes good business sense. We're, we're, we're try, trying to link, trying to make sure we're in sync. I've used that term a couple of times um, by partnering and whether the investment will come from an initial capital investment or mortgaging over time, we still have that resiliency objective. We still have a renewable objective, but not at all costs, so to we'll speak. Talk about public-private partnerships. We'll start with you, Ron, then I'd love to hear, I mean, uh, Christopher, then start, then hear from Christy and Ron. Uh, uh, it's become axiomatic to say that public-private partnerships are the only way we're going to get where we need to go. How is that working uh, from each of your perspectives in terms of uh, what's effective, what's not, where, and what would you uh, like to ask of the private sector and, and you of the public sector uh, to make things work better here in Hawaii? So we're doing that asking right now, and, and so... Before we were a little reluctant because of what might be perceived from, from the public's perspective in terms of putting our eggs in a particular basket without some sort of contractual relationship. But we're actually being encouraged from, whether it be a CNO perspective, CNO Richardson, to actively engage with um, the private sector, with consultants, um, with our utility service providers to, to try and investigate ways to get that mutual objective. So if, if the Navy can't come up with appropriated funds to be able to do that capital investment up front, what can we do to partner to get that third party financing to help us with our energy conservation measures or resiliency targets? So before where there was a reluctance, there is now added incentive for us to try and get those partnerships to help us achieve a resilience or a renewable goal. And so it's really a lot of a lot of it is about aligning incentives between the two. How is that working from your perspective, Christy? You know, so I, I would say you've heard me mention a few times um, interdependencies. And I think what I've seen here in Hawaii and um, certainly other places, but what's really, um, really seemed to resonate here is that in order to understand and have that context of how infrastructure is dependent on each other, and, and frankly, the second, third, fourth node from, from maybe the obvious um, thing, we, we need to be sharing information. So where I see these public-private partnerships um, really taking hold and having an impact is facilitating how we can share that information and bring everyone's knowledge base of what we're talking about up. Um, information and then what does it take to get to share it well I mean I think at a really basic level it's understanding um, beyond my immediate connection where am I getting my energy from um, and where am I going to get it if something goes wrong um, who else is relying on me and who else is relying on that and I think um, when you start to, 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 to even just have that understanding and that's easy information to share 
technically easy to share, but getting everyone into the room and talking about those things and kind of letting down, and you said this, kind of letting down the guard a little bit and kind of opening up that aperture, that that's a safe conversation to have is one example. I think there's other examples of understanding um, um, on, from an island perspective, we talked uh, earlier about a lot of infrastructure being on the coastline. So understanding where our vulnerabilities are at. When we look through scenarios, whether it be a lava situation or um, another a water event or something like that, understanding um, and sharing that understanding of what those impacts might look like. Um, and with that information, I think that informs planning decisions. I think that informs investment decisions um, because we just have a much richer understanding. And I think I've seen a lot of progress here in Hawaii on, on really bringing um, those conversations to, to the table and inviting everybody. And I think it's working. I want to get into some questions in just a minute, but Ron, what, where do you see uh, the public-private partnership working and not? Well, I think it's working, my view is it's working well here in Hawaii, uh, especially with our federal military partners. Military has a very big presence here. We're all on an island, you know, we're, we're all in the same canoe in that sense, and so we need to work together. And we, we've had, you look at the Schofield project that's just come into service at the beginning of this month. Uh, that was a great partnership with the Army. We have the uh, PV project, photovoltaic project, out on federal property, out in Westlock, that will be in service uh, later this year or early next. Those are two concrete examples of where that partnership is working. I, and I view it as a partnership, uh, not a, although we have agreements and uh, contracts, uh, it's really agreeing on a common goal and then aligning the contract to help achieve that goal successfully. You make it sound easy, and I know it's not. So, so, so help give us a little bit more of where you see some of the speed bumps. So I think uh, a speed bump, if I could you know, wave a magic wand and get uh, all the federal contracting and uh, lawyers to interpret the law the same way, that would help a lot for consistency uh, as we reach out to whether it's, whether it's the Air Force, uh, uh, you know, or the Army, or the Navy, or Department of Homeland Security, uh, you, you tend to get slightly different interpretations, and that can really affect, the, and the, even the agencies themselves will have different levels of willingness to want to work uh, in what's sometimes viewed as a sole source relationship with the electric service provider versus some other, you know, contractual enhanced use lease project, process or something else. So having sort of a unified view would be uh, would, that level of consistency, I think, would benefit all. Yeah. Communications, getting on the same page, shared incentives, it's, it's all of a piece. Let's get in a quick question, Elaine. Sure, so we had a virtual poll, as you know, very unscientific. Um, we asked, do you think your local energy infrastructure is secure against physical or digital attacks? And 50% said, no, it's definitely not secure. And 40% uh, said, don't know, but wish I knew. And 10% said, yes, I know it's a resilient system or is at least becoming more resilient. So not a ton of confidence in the ability to have um, physically and digitally secure infrastructure at this point, although it seems that our audience is still very interested. So the question is, um, in this push for more digital, bi-directional infrastructure, how can energy consumers and more distributed energy producers be more vigilant against cybersecurity attacks, or, or is this even a concern yet? So is that even the role of, of, of energy consumers to watch out for cybersecurity? Well, Ron, that sounds like your question. 
Well, I can speak for the electric company. Uh, you know, we've invested a lot of time and effort in the physical security and the cybersecurity. And again, another example of partnerships, which I don't highlight a lot, but we've been partnering for years with the Department of Defense and Department of Homeland Security, doing actual tests and experiments on uh, to yeah, looking at potential vulnerabilities. So we have actually invested a lot of time in upgrading the security of key substations and power plants. So now going into details, uh, I'll say that I feel pretty good about our posture here when it comes to security. Uh, and I don't really have a view on uh, the customer consumer role on the distributed energy side, although I think you know a wise customer would definitely pay attention to the vulnerabilities in a, in a digital world. I'm a little, only a little superstitious. I don't like you saying that. I feel really good about the security, but that's, that's good. Um, I, let me ask a final question, um, because we're, we're at, at time. Is When we come back here for Verge Hawaii 2020, how would you like the conversation to have progressed about resilience in Hawaii? Christopher? So uh, I'll just dovetail into what we're just touched on regarding cybersecurity. Cybersecurity of our control systems, our utility control systems, whether SCADA, direct digital controls, utility control systems, or building control systems, I'd like to be able to say that we have a handle on it three years from now because it's, it's a struggle right now and, and the investment required to get us there because obviously everything's going on networks and controls and whatever we put, we're putting in with the new technology, whether it's via smart grid or, or microgrids, the control systems and the cybersecurity are integral to what we're doing. And it's not just from external, sometimes it's, I was talking to one executive recently from a utility that says it's a lot of it's, it, it, the concerns can be internal, in, even inadvertently from, from employees as well. Christy? Yeah, I think I'll, I think yes, I agree. I like that one. Um, I'd also say, and I think it's similar, I'd, um, in the idea that in, in, in two or three years, that resilience, whether it's um, cybersecurity concerns, physical concerns, is a part of every conversation we're having. So when we're talking about emergency techno emerging technology on efficiency, right in that same conversation, rolling right off our tongues is, is resilience and security. And it's, and, it's, and it's an integrated part of, of the conversation. It's not an afterthought or an add-on. Mm -hmm. makes true sense. You get the last word. In three years from now, I would love to be able to say that we have a, a good consensus amongst our customers in our communities as to what they think resilience looks like and what they would be willing to accept in the way of perhaps infrastructure to help improve the resilience in their communities, whether that's uh, you know PV, battery energy storage, uh, you know small power plants of some sort in areas that are remote or power critical infrastructure. If we had sort of an external stakeholder agreement, that would be a real win. Three great goals. Please join me in thanking three great panelists. You've been listening to Ron Cox, Christy Riccardi, and Christopher Floro in conversation at the Verge Hawaii Conference in June 2018. For more Center Stage podcasts, go to greenbiz.com slash centerstage and while you're there, tune into GreenBiz 350, our weekly podcast covering the news and the people behind the news in sustainable business and clean technology. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>